Open up your Bibles to Hebrews. Um, I confessed this to um, Andy earlier in the week, and I'm going to confess it to you now. I always find Hebrews really hard to find in the Bible. Are, are you with me in that? It's like squidge between Philemon and James. So <clears throat> once you've done that, turn to, um, or it's on page 1009, actually. Um, we're going to finish off the book of Hebrews tonight, which is uh, a bit of a gargantuan effort, but a very much worthwhile one. And uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, um, from verse 18 to the end of chapter 13, right through to the end of the book. I'm going to read it for us, and then I'm going to pray, <clears throat> and then uh, we'll begin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as uh, though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let me pray for us as we start. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much for your glorious word. Well, thank you for all the themes that we've been looking at over the past few weeks and months um, in Hebrews. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have your words that we can read. And uh, Lord, I just pray that as we look at this together, as we finish off the book of Hebrews, that we will be warmed by the gospel that we'll be warmed by the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much. Thank you that you are here with us now. We pray that you bless our time, and may we glorify you as we do that. May your spirit be moving in our hearts and opening them up so that we can receive your word. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, As many of you will know, I have been working with students for the past five years in my role as a UCF staff worker. And uh, soon I'll be working here for the church, which is incredibly exciting. However, what many of you may not know, um, unless you're my wife or a very close friend, is that I've left my job with students with a remarkably different vocabulary than the one I entered with. And if you are sort of unfortunate to be in earshot of me when I'm a touch excitable, which I admit isn't that often, um, you'll have heard me using this vocabulary almost without thinking. And I'm not going to lie, it drives me up the wall. And you know what kind of language of which I speak. And for those of you who don't, let me explain. Rather than phrases such as, I found your remark particularly funny, you are hilarious, thanks for sharing, we now have, lol, which is shorthand for laugh out loud. And I think LOL is the worst of offenders. It sucks every single nuance and meaning out of the original phrase. So much so that the word laugh is effectively gagged and bound and hanging by its feet on the verbal equivalent of a dirty washing line in the middle of a cold, harsh Russian winter. It's awful. Other offenders include roffle, R-O-F-L, rolling on the floor laughing. It's awful. YOLO. You, you only live once. It's awful. And not only do you have these, you also have what we call popular contractions. Uh, the beautiful word of adorable is reduced to adorbs. <laughs> Terrific is constricted to terif. Legend is ledge. Gorgeous is gorge. Tragic is trag. The whole thing is horrendous. It's totes and approves. <laughs> and the problem is... The problem is, this is my problem with it, it's not even used ironically anymore. (laughs) 
Um, It's simply now just normal, everyday language. The Greek exit from the EU becomes Grexit. The British exit from the EU becomes Brexit. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie become Brangelina, and Her Majesty the Queen is Madge, and that is truly outrageous. (laughs) It is desperately upsetting. Anyway, Hebrews. Um, There is a point behind this. There really is. Because as ever with these things, we do at some point in all the rubbish get to a good glimpse at our own culture. And within all this rubbish, there is one word that has been birthed into this new world of language that has claimed a lot of attention over the past year or so. Even if it's despicably awful as all the others, it does very much resonate with exactly where we are as a culture, I feel. And I'm not just talking about student culture, I'm talking about all of us sitting here, from the youngest to the oldest tonight. It's a four-letter abbreviation that, although it seems innocuous, is actually a remarkably accurate critique on where we are in the West as a whole. And the word is FOMO. F-O-M-O. The fear of missing out. And we all know what that kind of feels like, don't we? wanting what other people have, desiring to be in other people's situations. But it's become such a thing in society to be where all the best people are, to want what the celebrity has, running after the latest fads to reckless abandon, that it's got its own word. And the most extreme version of this, and it is an extreme version, it's called the Facebook feeling. And it's because of Facebook, actually, that FOMO was born. Facebook, that horrendous, self-gratifying, self-glorifying window that, that we present to the world, where the pictures we put up are only the ones we want people to see, where the things that we status are the things that we want people to click like on, the life decisions that we make a show of that 10 years ago not many people would have even known about are now emblazoned all over the internet for everyone to ogle at and make them wish they were us. And vice versa. We look on everyone else's Facebook pages and comment and dream and wish and covet. And we see our lives, the lives that we wish that we were living, played out on our computer screens and on our phones like some too real, too sweet drama that is tantalizingly close but oh so far away. And that's a society pitch. I exaggerate slightly, but that's where it's played out. As a society, we want what we don't have, don't we? As a society, we want what other people have. As a society, we live beyond our means to get it. I'm not just blaming Facebook or the people who use it. It's just human nature. And we are all guilty of this, whether in very small ways or in very large ways. Now, it all comes down to the fear of missing out. The fear that someone is having a better time than us, having a better life than us. And in our safe middle-class scenarios, this can be quite subversive. And I, more than most, suffer with this most keenly. I have to be really honest here. To the extent where sometimes the hardest thing I have to do in the entire week is to walk through those doors at the back of this church on a Sunday morning and try to fit in with everyone else, ranking myself according to how well I'm doing in regards to that person and where I am in life against the other person. And it's all because I am petrified of missing out. And the question is this. What am I not believing about the gospel when I feel like that? And what does this all have to do with Hebrews? I think it has a great, great deal to do with Hebrews. Let's read the first few verses again with me. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. This is where we start. My talk basically is in just two parts tonight. Hebrews 12 
and Hebrews 13. Sorry, it's very boring, but <clears throat> that's where we're going. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 13. Let's just start reading 18 to 24 again. Let's get this into our heads. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given that even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is amazing language. It's really powerful stuff. This is one of my most favorite, favorite parts of Scripture. But what's really going on? It's like Hebrews has gone nuclear at this point. Well, the writer is highlighting the old covenant, isn't he? Can you see that in the pictures he uses? You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, sound of trumpets, voices which are deafening. This is... Pentateuch language, the language of the law, the language of Exodus and Deuteronomy, where the people of God have fled to Egypt and they have been brought to Mount Sinai, the place where the holy law of God was given and where a new relationship in the form of the covenant was established between God and man. And at Mount Sinai, God was very much present in physicality. He was a pillar of fire. He was a cloud in the wilderness. He was a tempest that swirled around the recalcitrant people of God. The mountain itself was electric with God's presence, so much so that the people could go nowhere near it. In fact, this is such an awesome picture of God that even Moses was terrified. We're kind of meant to read this and shrink back a little bit. It's awesome stuff. What's the writer's point Well, his point is quite simple. You have not come to this covenant. You have not come to something that is tangible in that sense, or that can be felt or seen in a worldly sense. You have also not come to something that is too terrifying to stand before, especially as you realize your own frailty in, in, in the light of an almighty power. What have you come to? You have come to something much better. Have you noticed that even though there's so much power in the first five verses, there's one word that is actually missing, and that word is God. All we see at the moment in Sinai is terrifying manifestations of him, or theophanies, to use the real term. And the old covenanters could not actually get to know God. They couldn't even touch the mountain he sat on. What have we come to? We've come to a different mountain. We've come to Mount Zion. The holy city, and not just any city, but the city of the living God himself. And there he is, God, mentioned in verse 22. The writer is saying, Christian, this is what you have come to. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to a great feast where angels attend. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. All those souls and heroes mentioned in chapter 11, the Abrahams, the Josephs, the Moseses, the Gideons, the Davids, and the Rahabs, they're all here and you're one of them. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's you and me, people who were wretches made whole, people who were dead and made alive, people who were cut off from heaven and now standing in its throne room. And you've come to God himself. 
as you come to the person of Jesus Christ, you now see him, properly see him, not at a distance on a mountain, but face to face with the one who judges perfectly. The one who made it possible for us to see and know God, Jesus Christ. The one who became the mediator of this new covenant. And the one who sprinkles his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Can you read this and say, and now I'm crippled by the fear of missing out in our world? You've got to be kidding me. We are foolish, foolish creatures to think that we may be missing out on anything. Why? Because we have come to Jesus Christ. The point on which this entire epistle and the entirety of history stands. This is astonishing rhetoric. It's astonishing truth. And as we read this, we feel that our hearts should rejoice at this, like no other people on earth, because this is so true. Should they not? And it gets better. Because we have come to this city, this new mountain, this new reality, by nothing that we have done. Because this is God's new covenant, mediated by this Jesus, sprinkled with his blood. I'm not included, really, in any of the activity here at all. It's simply Jesus-focused. I merely am in attendance in this passage. But what does Jesus' blood actually achieve? That's what we end on in this bit. What does Jesus' blood actually achieve? And what is the word of the blood of Abel that we see here in verse 24? And what does Jesus' blood have to do with that? Well, if you remember, um, right back near the beginning of time, back in Genesis, after mankind has first fallen, has been ejected from the garden, Abel, the younger son of Adam and Eve, who offered a good offering to the Lord from his heart, was murdered by his jealous older brother Cain. And as Abel's body lies in the dirt, God says to Cain in Genesis 4, What have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed. Now, can you see the comparison between Abel and Jesus? The first blood that was spilt could do nothing but shout out vengeance and cursing, no matter how good Abel was in life. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks the word of love and righteousness and sacrifice and justice and forgiveness and atonement. Can you see that? This is what you have come to. And this is the means by which you have come. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, you have not come to cursing and death. You've come to forgiveness and life. And it's all to do with Jesus' blood that was shed for you so that you may stand before him. The comparison here in these few verses is stark, isn't it? It's between two cities, two mountains, two covenants. The first is merely a physical reality that shows us just how small we are in comparison to the God that cannot be seen. And the second shows us a deeper reality, where God has made himself seen, has made himself known through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, and a reality in which I can inhabit without fear. And the point is this. Why would you want to go back to the former? Why would you want to go back to the old covenant? Why would I long for and desire the physical, that which can be touched? Do you see that? Now, we need to be careful. We're not leaving the physical behind as we sort of imagine ourselves in this, in this new environment and then we, we sort of gain something that sounds a bit rubbishy and airy-fairy. No. Read verses 26 and 27 with me. 
It says this. At that time, this is the time of the Old Covenant, God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, can you see what the writer is doing? He's not saying that now we are Christians in this new reality, that we leave all the physical stuff behind and we move on into a state of spiritual being where everything is ethereal and opaque. No, quite the opposite. He's saying, in fact, that what we have in Christ is more real. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, I don't know if you've read it, it's a fascinating book, it's an allegory of heaven, details what a mortal man experiences for the first time when he gets to heaven. And I think it's a fascinating insight into what Hebrews is getting at here. So please indulge me for a moment as I read out a particular, a particular passage from this book. Um, as this young man details what he notices about heaven. He says this. Now that the people who had come with me into heaven were in the full light, I noticed that they were transparent, fully transparent, when they stood between me and the vehicle, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, like ghosts, man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air, one could attend to them or ignore them at will, as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I also noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all the men I had ever known had always been, perhaps. It was the light and the grass and the trees that were different. Made of some different substance, so much solider than the things in our own country, that men were mere ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out of my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard. Not like wood or even like iron, but like a diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort. And I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. And as I stood, recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, I noticed I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through my feet. I also was a phantom. Who will give me the words to express the terror of that discovery? This place was more real than even myself. What a description. It's fiction. But Lewis makes a great point. One that Hebrews is getting at here. We are moving into a kingdom that is made of some different substance that is so much solider than the things in our own country. The fear of missing out is the fear of man and stuff. And that is born out of the fact that we have forgotten that we belong into a deeper reality. One that is so much more real than the physical stuff around us. One that supersedes stuff and things which will all be essentially shaken away. What have we truly come to then? We've come to verse 28. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
A kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom in which we are more human. A kingdom made of some different substance that is of much solider than the things in our own country. You are not missing out. And what do we do with all this truth? Knowing what we know about Jesus and what we have in him and the reality that we have, what do we do? Well, as you notice, the passage has a warning and a command. The warning is this in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape him who warns from heaven. In short, just like those in the Exodus or at Sinai who failed to obey the law who were judged, so must we listen to the one who still judges from heaven. The new covenant has not got rid of the consequences of sin or the need for us to follow Jesus who saves us and to live life well. He's not got rid of the need for us to be saved. And the command is this, verse 28. Let us be grateful for this kingdom and let us offer to God acceptable worship. Notice the way that Hebrews is stacked here. Um, The warning and the command come after the glories of what we receive in Christ. In short, would you not want to follow someone who offers something more real than we have now? Would you not want to offer God acceptable worship in the light of everything we've looked at with thanksgiving and gratefulness? And have we considered God being a consuming fire? Have you noticed God's power and terror hasn't actually changed from the old covenant? He's not mollified so that quaint, quiet Jesus can have a stab at salvation. No. He's the same ferocious God who sat at the top of Mount Sinai as he is in the person of Jesus Christ. Is he safe? Says Lucy upon hearing of Aslan. Oh, he's not safe. But he is good. To that end, if all this is true, and it very much is, then the question is, what are we playing at? In our daily lives, in my daily life, in my sin-riddled life, when I look at others, when I get that Facebook feeling, when I look at stuff, when I look at the world, when I find myself longing for them, what am I playing at? I find that my desires are in all the wrong places. Again, C.S. Lewis, you can guess what I've been reading recently. As he was thinking about all of this, as, as how long we, we sort of long for all the wrong things in the light of what we are truly given in Christ, he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What are we playing at where we're sucked in by the world? We're playing at mud pies. We're far too easily pleased. Can you see that? Our fear of missing out is born out of the fact that our desires are for mud pies and not for holidays by the sea. Our desires are for the mere physical reality rather than the deeper reality of the new covenant. Our desires are for the fleeting moments of the now rather than the kingdom that cannot be shaken. But fascinatingly, Hebrews does not end in chapter 12. And this is the the, the second half um, as we go into chapter 13. To a certain extent, it really could end there, but it's so important that it doesn't. Because wonderfully, we do have a life to live now. And this is so important in all of this. And please, as ever, don't hear what I'm not saying. We can enjoy life now. In fact, Hebrews 12 gives us license to. Notice the tense of verses 18 to 29. It's all present. 
It's all present tense. It's all happened and happening. You have come. See that you do not. Therefore, let us. Isn't that fascinating? It is not just a future reality we're talking about here as much as it is. It is also a reality that breaks into our life now. It's just not fully seen in all its glory yet. That's what we're waiting for. The now and the not yet. But the connotation is very much that I can enjoy this kingdom and I can enjoy Jesus now. I can enjoy having families. I can long for the time when I'm going to be a dad. I can look forward to MasterChef or my meal tonight and the course I study and the holiday I've booked and the music I play and the films I watch and the walks I go on and the time with my friends and the job that I do because we are put to life. We are not spirited away to some discreet place where we're mothballed for a few dozen years before we finally shuffle off this mortal coil and join the stars. That's nuts. It's actually tremendously anti-biblical. And how do we know this? Because Hebrews continues. After all this rhetoric, after seeing Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the angels in feastal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, Jesus Christ himself, God as a consuming fire, what do we get in chapter 13? Let brotherly love continue. Just be a good friend. That's all, nothing complicated. Don't neglect hospitality to strangers. Be a good husband, be a good wife. Enjoy marriage, keep it well. Don't hunger for money, just be content with what you have. That's all, nothing complicated. Do you get it? What does the power and the magnitude of the glories that we have just seen produce? It just produces normal, simple, everyday, consistent living and doing it well. And that is what we are asked to do because Jesus is still on the throne and life is important. And it is not only that we merely enjoy life, but that we live it well. We exemplify this kingdom. We exemplify Jesus Christ in how we live. And it isn't to say that these things aren't really hard. Or that they don't require a lot of work. They do. It's why they're here in the back end of Hebrews. Because it's difficult to do well. But can you see that in knowing everything that has gone before in chapter 12, it gives us license to enjoy a simple life? It gives us license to simply live our lives well, to be content and to want nothing more, and to proclaim Jesus? There's a reason why all this stuff is put at the end of such an epic book. Because chapter 13 is where we really live out chapters 1 to 12. And look at how we do that in chapter 13. In our friendships, verse 1. In our kindness to strangers, verse 2. In our looking after the prisoner, verse 3. In our marriages and parenting, verse 4. In our handling of money, verse 5. In our leadership, verse 7. In our worship, verse 15. In our simply doing good, verse 16. And in our respect for authority, verse 18. It's all normal stuff. It's so undemonstrative. It's not complicated. But it is hard. And it's hard because life changes. In that, life is changeable. Life isn't a constant run or a simple set of linear decisions that all go our way. And you know what? It makes sense that we believe in the lie that other people around us are doing better or that grass is greener on the other side or that our desires can be fulfilled by the next best thing, the newer car, the next romantic relationship, the bigger house, the better holiday. And as much as all these things are fantastic as we've seen and can be enjoyed with thanksgiving, the truth is they will only let us down if they become the things that we idolize, the things that we live for. Attempting to shore up your life with all these things alone is like trying to light a candle in a hurricane. It can't be done. 
And so we get to the reason why Hebrews ends on chapter 13. Because as much as life is changeable, and people are fickle, and friendships will let you down, and family is difficult, and jobs are fleeting, and wealth is lost, Jesus is the same. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus is the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be the same. He has always been the same. Jesus is unchangeable. He is not fickle. He does not leave you or forsake you, verse 5. He is not a fair-weather friend. He is not difficult. He is not transient. He cannot be lost. He is not fleeting. He is the same. He is constant. He is made of some different substance that is so much solider than the things in our own country. And as we finish this book, can you see that not only do we have we come to a kingdom that is unshakable, but we have come to a Jesus who is unchanging. And we come to him now. For those of you who, who don't know Jesus, this is the offer. This is the offer in life. Coming to this Jesus that knows you and who shed his blood for you and wants you to come into this unchanging, this unshakable kingdom. In the midst of our mess and the pain of our ordinary everyday lives, he is there. He is the same. He is quite definitively the only thing we have in our lives that is constant, strong, immovable, and eternal. Jesus Christ is rock-like. And it is on this rock that the writer exhorts us to build our lives. Why would you want to do anything else? Why would we want to shore up our lives with the fleeting pleasures of the present when we can have the surety of the eternal rock of Jesus? Why would we settle for mud pies in slums when we can be holidaying by the sea? As we draw to a close, we actually come to the point where we begin to see the author's grand theme, the theme that runs through the whole of the entire book. And you'll be staggered to know that the theme is Jesus. Simply Jesus. In that, Jesus is quite simply everything you need, him and nothing else. And walk with me through the whole book of Hebrews. That will scare you, don't worry. This is very good. How, look, at, look at how the author actually does this. Weave Jesus through the whole of this book. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is God. He is God's son. Jesus, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is greater than the angels. Chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. Chapter 4 and 5, Jesus is the great high priest. Chapter 6, Jesus is the greater Abraham. Chapter 7, Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Chapter 8, Jesus is the greater covenant. Chapter 9, Jesus is the greater redeemer. Chapter 10, Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Chapter 11, Jesus is greater than all the men of faith. And chapter 12, Jesus is the greater kingdom. That is Hebrews. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. At all points and in all ways, Jesus is better. And because of this Jesus, we can now confidently say in verse 6, in the face of the fear of missing out, in the face of real struggle and burden in life, that the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man possibly do to me now that I have Jesus who is greater? And is it not wonderful that this mighty, mighty book ends on chapter 13, where we read that Jesus is now the greater shepherd? Chapter 13, 20 to 21. 
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the greater shepherd, the one who leads, the one who knows his sheep by name, the one who navigates us through life's valleys of pain and mountaintops of joy, the one who understands more than any other how much we suffer and struggle as he suffered and struggled before us, the one who was tempted just as we are, the one who knows we are foolish, foolish creatures like sheep who enjoy wandering off on our own, longing for greener pastures someplace else and who do not listen to his voice. And he is the one who travels across space and time to get us back. He is the one who at the end of time will stand before those who have called on his name and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter my rest. He is the one who will never leave you or forsake you. He is the one who shows his wounded hands as in eternity as a reminder of just how it could be that we could ever stand before him. He is the one who went outside of the camp like the priests of old so that we could be washed and brought back into community and covenant with himself. And he is the one who allows us to enter the throne room of God with confidence as we live finally and fully in the kingdom that is truly unshakable with himself, Jesus, who is truly unchanging. You ever have the fear of missing out? Preach this to yourself. Christian, says the book of Hebrews, you are not missing out. Let's pray together, shall we, as we close. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much for this wonderful, glorious truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that we are brought into a kingdom that is unshakable. Lord, we realize that we don't see that fully yet, Lord, but as this book says, we will see it fully. And thank you that we, we, we are there because of Jesus Christ, not for anything that we have done. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who shed his blood for us, so that we may live with you and see you and reign with you. Lord God, we praise you for this wonderful truth. This is simple gospel truth. And I pray that it would warm our hearts. Lord, forgive us when we are attracted by the world. Help us when we are to be reminded that we have a greater kingdom, that we are in a deeper reality, that Jesus Christ is so much more solider than anything else. Lord, we praise you for these truths. And Lord, as we sit here all with our different individual problems, Lord, we know that life is really hard and we know that we are exhorted to live life well. We thank you that you help us in that. Lord, we pray that you would. Lord, we pray that we would be unashamed of this gospel, that we would go out of here feeling more in love with you and more willing to tell others about you because of how wonderful this gospel is. We praise you, we do give you all the glory in your mighty name. Amen.